Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. I am your host, Jason Miles, and thank you for joining us for our very special episode today on Iran. Usually we broadcast on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday with a sometimes why Wednesday. But today we wanted to do a special show for you guys. We've been trying to get this kind of during our regular show times. It didn't work out, so we decided we're going to do a special stream today, Friday. So we even have a special teaming of the crew. First and foremost, I'm here with, as usual, my homie, my dog, the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings, peace and greetings, Jason Miles. And just so you guys know, we did two different shows today. Um, This is actually being done early in the morning for me. And Pascal already recorded a show that was coming on after this show, even earlier in the morning. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good, but they didn't call me for that one. Then I lied. (laughs) Okay. Then, then they're trying to coup this is revolution and take the black people off the air. That will never happen. Well, speaking of the Kurdish coup, let's bring in Kurd, 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 Kurdish word, everyone's favorite history professor at Missouri State University, me, Jean Bajlan. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Pascal. I hope you are both doing well today. It's uh, Friday, so up early in the morning, keeping fresh, ready I, for it. I went to look, Gene. I want you to know this. I got off the show last night with the intention to be show ready at 6 a.m. And my alarm went off at 4.59. And my first reaction was, F those people for trying to book this show that early. <laughs> and it was Stefan and Stefan's grace that said, Jason, it's like ridiculously early where you are. And then Jean said, fine, go back to sleep. I, I, that, I That's not how I was saying, fine, go back to sleep. I was saying like, go back to sleep, rest your, <laughs> rest your weary head upon <laughs> the pillow. Uh, but, you know, um, I'm actually really excited uh, and glad that we could do this today uh, because, you know, there's been a lot in the news about the Iran protests. There's a lot of different dynamics in play. And I think, I mean, Zizek called this of world historical importance. I don't know if that will turn out to be the case, but I do think these these protests raise a lot of questions for us in the West about questions of solidarity they also raise a lot of questions about the type of political regimes that are taking place, you know, that are governing in the Middle East and, you know, how people are suffering and chafing under those regimes. What is the role of the, the West in making those conditions worse? And I think it's really important to be able to have a like conversation with informed people about this. So it was good to talk to Dastan this morning to get her perspective from the uh, Kurdish female a uh, uh, feminist uh, perspective, 
and it will be really good to talk to Askenda today, our guest, uh, you know, who is a historian of Iran, mm-hmm. who is a historian of the Iranian left, of the Iranian revolution, so understands the dynamics. And I would recommend, if people haven't seen it, we did an episode with Askenda, I guess, is it, was it a year ago, Jason? There'll be, there'll be links in the description uh, of this show, and there will also be links in the chat for the live show. So this show is pre-recorded, uh, but uh, M2 Sant will be moderating the chat as well, and Pascal and I might be dropping in the chat. I can't speak for Gene. Um, you might be dropping the chat a little bit, Gene, too. Maybe, yeah, if if the children... Uh, if the children decide to go to bed. Speaking of chafing and the children, there is one person we have not brought in yet that is part of the TIR family. They are the, definitely sometimes why in the TIR universe. Wonderful hair. Stefan Richard. I was excited because I don't think any of the previous times I've seen, uh, I've been on and it's been you with the soundboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I was like, oh, but we're going to be talking about right, real shit today. So there probably won't <laughs> be that much tomfoolery going on with the soundboard. So I'll just have to wait for uh, uh, some tomfoolery in the future. Uh, we I, we try to get all the tomfoolery out before we got on air. And I think we got all the giggles out beforehand which I hope don't affect our guest. Jean, would you like to bring in our guest? Since sure. You, you guys have uh, a personal friendship that goes back some years, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah, Askenda Saradi was a uh, PhD student at Oxford at the same time as me. He actually knew Sarah uh, better than I did. But, uh, you know, over the years, thanks to WhatsApp, and the terrible state of the left, we have uh, communicated about things, uh, you know, discussed things. And, um, you know, uh, he's really, you know, a, an excellent scholar of Iran and a decent person. He teaches at Goldsmiths in London, uh, which I believe was where Mark Fisher used to teach. So, yeah, mm-hmm. he, uh, you know, so he's somebody who I really trust his instincts and opinions on Iran, because there's a lot of people out there who have, I mean, everybody has an ideological agenda, but there are there are a lot of people out there who are engaging in wishful thinking about these protests, who are engaging in uh, trying to frame it according to their particular narrow political project, whether that's the Shaists, you know, or the, you know, Mujahideeni Khalq, all these different groups. Um, but I think Askenda is going to be able to give us like a kind of honest uh, and clear picture of what is going on because of his deep knowledge uh, of this topic. So, uh, so please welcome Eskander Sakade. Did I say it? Did I say it correctly? It's Sadeghi Burujerdi, but that's fine. But you were close. Um, it's good. I don't honestly. I don't expect anybody to pronounce my name. Uh, Sadegi, Sadegi. Isn't it, it? Isn't it because? Isn't it the the g at the end is because Persians always uh, change k's to g's. So it's no, Sadiq. it comes from the Arabic Sadiq. You know. Like, yeah. With it, yeah, but honest. So I mean, it's, it's a cough. Yeah, it's a cough. Mm-hmm. 
But you pronounce cuffs as a G, I notice. Like sometimes they sound a bit more like a G than a K. What is it? What, is no, Bain and Gaf in Persian are pronounced pretty much the same, but then in Arabic, right. there's a slight you difference in the way you actually, it's more guttural than the Arabic. But anyway, have your smart Persian guy conversation somewhere else. Okay? Yeah, sorry, guys. Yeah, two great smart to be here. British Persian guys. There's just too much right now. <laughs> great to be here. Thanks for having me. Skandar, I want to tell you, I want to welcome you again back to the show because I was uh, honored enough to have you on the first time and be your interlocutor, and that was a very, very great episode. We went into a very deep dish dive into Iranian history, Persian history, the role of the Iranian Revolution, the phase of the Iranian left. So I think it's only correct that we have you on to talk about this current crisis and trying to frame it in a proper, in a proper perspective. Can you give us your clear explanation of who are the players on the ground? Let's begin with the case of Masha Amina. She died being detained by the morality police. Can you explain who the morality police are and how they relate to the Iranian security services? Okay, so I mean, I guess the who Masha Amini or Regina Amini was is increasingly well known. I think it's been covered quite a lot of it. She was just a 22-year-old Kurdish from Sakhez, a small, um, very small town in uh, Kurdistan, Iranian Kurdistan. Um, yeah, who was who went to Tehran, was uh, picked up by the uh, morality police. Its actual name is Gashd Ershad, and it, which means like more like guidance patrol. So, so you could look at it as that sort of a euphemistic way of putting it. But, you know, their point, I mean, their objective, at least or the principle behind it is to provide guidance on proper Islamic conduct in public space. Uh, and obviously, it specifically relates to uh, women's um, dress. So obviously, she was uh, taken into custody. Uh, it seems very clear that she was beaten. And then as a result of uh, the wounds she sustained and the shock to the, 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 the sort of being struck on the head, um, this led her to basically collapse and uh, and die at the hands of this organ of the um, yeah killed at the at the hands of this organ of the Iranian state. So yeah, as I said, their name is Gashta Ershad. So like uh, this sort of um, guidance patrol. Um, yeah, you can you find them all throughout um, Iran, throughout uh, in Tehran, for instance. You'll find them in crowded spaces. You'll find them outside cinemas, theaters. Um, they're mobile. So, you know, they actually are patrolling. So for obviously for cases of women who are not properly, you know, proper, uh, properly uh, you know, Islamically attired or they have the right Islamic attire, modestly dressed again, or in scare quotes. Um, and yeah, I mean, the range of what they will do can vary. And it really is down to, um, I mean, dumb luck in some cases, but obviously the, the nature of the violence is constitutive of, of, of the way it works. But um, you know, often they might just give kind of a warning. They might give some sort of exhortation. Um, I mean, there is this kind of principle also in sort of Islamic ethics of um, you know, so um, exhorting the good, prohibiting evil. Um, and it's sort of it is almost seen as an obligation by the pious to, in a sense, warn or exhort uh, people to behave in a properly Islamic context. The difference, of course, here is that it's kind of institutionalized in the state um, and state apparatus. Um, um, and can I just, yeah, can I yeah. follow, just, just, just to follow up on that. So, you know, 
we're talking about uh, this arm of the state that is basically an institutionalization of this principle that you know the pious should uh, encourage people to behave uh, properly and the focus is uh, for example on women is relating to dress and specifically uh, from what a lot of people talk about in the west and from the symbols of these protests it's about uh, the headscarf specifically although i do realize like you can't wear clothes that are too tight or like too you know too seen as too revealing what is the context in which you know this institution was established in the first place and the standards for the headscarf and how these people are going to you know what women are supposed to wear in public how were those established and is it evenly applied across the country you know is tehran are there different standards in tehran from then for example in uh, uh, other parts of the country i just i mean yeah i mean i'll start with the last bit because i think that's uh it is very unevenly applied i mean i think that's why i mean how it's enforced so you could have a bad day i mean a woman could have a bad day and get sort of a quite um, nasty individual encounter such a nasty, and they could actually be dragged kicking and screaming into the van and taken to the um the, the sort of where they actually go and hold them you know um and um, keep them and um and detain them and then you know you might have they might have to call your parents or your father or your brother or whatever to get you out or it might just be like they just tell you to you know pull, pull your sort of uh, headscarf uh, up for instance so um and yeah they are um often mixed between women because obviously in principle men aren't meant to be manhandling women um you know, but that also does uh, happen quite frequently i mean it does um but it's why, yeah. Also, I mean, also I just want to make this point clear. I mean, there is like, it is the fact that this, these basic principles of regulating public space um, in accordance with a so-called sort of Islamic uh, ethic um, is seen as integral to the state's identity. Um, sort of policing public space in this way is absolutely crucial. And if you think that you know a significant swath of the population doesn't agree or doesn't really accept the state or a section of the state even or let's say the more conservative elements even of the state kind of definition of what is appropriate dress then by definition you're going to have some resistance to that and then therefore you're going to need coercion and you're going to need violence and you're going to need uh, brutality in order to enforce that so i mean i've said this also but i think yeah obviously violence and brutality so this is, is baked into the cake i mean it's not like uh, you know this kind of nonsense that it was, was an accident and that the state is trying to push this sort of lie it's no i mean it's just a matter of time till this happens and it happens again that it happens again i mean like a lot of the nature of all sort of violent institutions i mean it's just the, the you know they, they tend to reproduce the um violence it's not incidental anyway um so um I mean, so do you want me to go back? I mean, in terms of this, the actual current sort of um, manifestation of, actually, I just want to make this other point as well. I mean, there are other ways in which this is enforced as well. So, I mean, um, there is even now women who, who are driving, if they're not wearing the headscarf, they can actually get fines. I mean, they get caught mm. on camera and get fined and then, you receive, and then they might receive a text and it will say, oh yeah, um, you were caught with a bad, you're, you're bad hijab. Um, and therefore you have to pay a fine or something. So even like the kind of the techniques and forms and modern forms of governmentality, uh, state monitoring, um, um, surveillance, they're all also part of this actually. And I think it goes back, I mean, to maybe go back to the beginning, it does go, and maybe we spoke a little bit about this last time, but I mean, the state historically saw it as its obligation to, you know, to really through its sort of ideological state apparatuses, 
and to get a bit Althusserian to like interpolate its subjects as subjects of, you know, as good Muslim pious subject citizens, right? I mean, and that's something which isn't a sort of a one-off. It doesn't just, you have the, you have the revolution, institutionalization of the Islamic state, and then it's all kind of hunky-dory. That's something which obviously needs to be repeatedly kind of reinforced, just like sort of police authority is sort of the kind of the famous example which Althusser says, you know, when the cop sort of calls and hails, then, you know, and you hear him across the street, um, you kind of feel that he's necessarily, he's impolating you, inter interpolating you as a subject of, you know, his authority kind of thing and of state authority. And it's a similar thing in the case of the Islamist state. I mean, it's interpolating as an Islam, as a subject of the Islamist state and is constantly kind of reinforcing that kind of symbolic authority and hold which it has over, you know, the imagination, the sense of political uh, possibility, um, your daily routine. I mean, you know, it's not uncommon. Actually, it's very common for, you know, for Iranian women. I mean, and again, I don't feel entirely comfortable speaking on their behalf, but I'm not. I'm just sort of, mainly I'm just relaying what I've, what I've always just heard growing up uh, from a very young age. You know, just a sense of anxiety and stress just even going out. I mean, you know, and of course, they're, they're very brave and, you know, and, and a lot of them just get on and live their lives and do whatever the heck they want. And they, and you know, but there is that sense of anxiety and it is a pervasive anxiety. And it's one of the things that regularly I mean, my wife always tells me, she says, yeah, I mean, I, hijab wasn't my number one thing even in Iran, actually. There were many other things which I had problems with. But there is this sense which, you know, there was a pervasive anxiety around it that, you know, any minute someone could just say, hey, you know, I'm pulling and pull you aside. So, um that's a kind of important element. I mean, I, I don't know. Do you want to go back to how we, this, what, how sort of mandatory hijab maybe sort of came onto the scene, or do you want to um, address other things? I mean, if briefly, perhaps we could just talk about how the hijab became this key s symbol of this thing, and and how has it been? I mean, from what I've read recently, for example, the new administration has actually really uh, sought to uh, strengthen. Uh, this side of the Islamic Republic by, you know, being stricter on these things. But there have been periods uh, where the things have perhaps become a little bit easier. It's not been evenly, it's not e been evenly enforced over the entire history of the Islamic Republic, or is that a misunderstanding? No, no, I mean, it's true. I mean, I think like if, if we go back to the revolution, I'll do it quick. So like in 79, when you have sort of International Women's Day um, and there was like a thousands and thousands and thousands of women protested against sort of Khomeini's um, statement that women uh, need to be properly, you know, properly uh, clad Islamic, you know, uh, in uh, state ministries. Um, and tens of thousands of women protested um, in the streets um, against mandatory hijab. Um, um, and, and in a sense, yeah, it was sort of like, um, I think I've mentioned to you this elsewhere, uh, Gene, it was sort of like a canary in the coal mine. They kind of sensed yeah. like what was coming in a way. Um, and many others were very actually dismissive, not necessarily just of, not necessarily just of, of the women who were objecting to this. Actually. They just thought it was actually impossible. I mean, uh, when the revolution happened, the idea that mandatory hijab was actually something which was going to be as soon a reality and a lived reality for millions of Iranian women was not even on the radar. I mean... Um, who was the head of national state TV at the time, he was even he was like, this is and was later executed for trying to actually overthrow the regime. Even he was like, this is impossible. This is like, not, not going to happen. And I think like there was a sense of just many people just didn't believe that um, Iranian society could be transfigured in such a way and quite rapidly, really. So what happens ultimately is obviously those protests uh, against mandatory hijab are, are repressed. Then you know, Iran goes through a very turbulent period of 
basically almost civil war, um, which again, you know, the Islamic Republic and the Islamic Republic Party managed to consolidate themselves. And then there's the war for, you know, for eight years. And obviously, I think like, I mean, the war was generally very crucial to the Islamic Republic's ability to institutionalize itself, especially kind of the forced um, sort of, I mean, the unnecessary um, continuation of the war for six years after sort of Khwarezm Shah the south, in the southwest was reconquered. Um, but you know the the sort of the enforcement of this of, a, of almost like a kind of a state uniform, um, particularly the, the what's called the magnair, which is a kind of hijab which is black often and covers the whole face and the neck, um, and sort of imposition of that through the state. And I mean, as you know, I mean, as you're like a student of nationalism, and you realize just you know. Um, the state through the state through state ministries through schools through all these sorts of things that um, certain norms certain ways forms of behavior comportments and so on are imposed um, from above through these through these apparatuses and that was something which took you know a fair amount of time to happen then this was really the case until uh, really the the 90s like the late 90s when you had the Khatami administration and there was sort of the reformist period in that and lots of people were very hopeful and you know he got 20 million votes and really sort of had this landslide kind of victory at the time and and there was a hope that there would be kind of a flourishing and there was like a brief flourishing of civil society and these sorts of things and um, women were more proactive and there were um, a lot more sort of civic activism and, and that sort of stuff um, but that was quick, quickly sort of repressed. But then, you know, once things are kind of introduced, it becomes, you know, a new bar. And women obviously just continue to push and continue to push and um, continue to kind of uh, mobilize um, and just push the boundaries just generally, just in everyday forms. And there was this kind of um, genre of scholarship, actually, like in the 2000s, which was kind of problematic in a way, insofar as it thought that, you know, pushing the hijab back like an inch or engaging in kind of hedonistic sexual relations, particularly in a very, and it was a very kind of individualistic sense. They thought they basically equated this to just resistance, um, right? That was like a genre of scholarship, which was uh, very popular at one point. Um, but, you know, you could see women were doing that and it did actually matter and it did have material effects, but it was, there was lots of collective organizing going on um, as well, either through feminist publications, through reading groups, study groups, through actually, then there was subsequently this one million signature campaign, which was trying to obviously uh, improve a lot of women's um, just rights more generally, because it's not obviously just the hijab, which is the issue, it's divorce, it's child custody, um, it's uh, inheritance laws, it's even leaving the country, I mean, you know, um, women, unless they, they have to often have the permission from either a father or a husband to leave the country. I mean, you know, this kind of, um, notion that they have someone who is responsible. So, I mean, patriarchy and patriarchal power is, I mean, initially, I think when the revolution happened, this was actually something which the Islam Islamists massively were able to tap into. They were able, they were able to tap into these deep currents of, uh, uh, and pa of patriarchy, patriarchal traditions, um, and some men's willingness to completely go along with this in order to institutionalize their um, political stranglehold. Um, and they did that very, very effectively. And like even those protests that I said, where tens and tens of thousands of women mobilized in uh, 79, um, men were absent um, and men didn't come out. And I think that was very much um, a shortcoming. And even though many, many leftist militant women joined, the, um, the even the main militant sort of leftist organizations of the time, many of them sort of said, you know, um, 
this isn't the priority or they didn't actually actively support it, even if later on they sort of issued some statements in support. But you also, I mean, just to be fair, I mean, the revolution had literally just happened, like in February, and then these happened in March. So we have to kind of, I think, contextualize it as well. But it was a, it was a shortcoming of definitely certain um, elements uh, on the left as well. But like I said, you know, women have been fighting that continuously uh, and, on, and in an ongoing way. Um, and I should say as well, I mean, and I haven't given enough, like nearly enough due, but obviously, I mean, yeah, as Jean, as you know, the, the Kurdish struggle was also absolutely um, integral here. It was in 79 very much. I mean, people like um, Abdurrahman Qasim Lu, who were very kind of clear in the criticism of like an Islamic Republic basically coming into being. But I mean, in maintaining, I guess, those broader traditions and deeper traditions of resistance to kind of, um, yeah, the centralized government, whether it's actually um, the Pahlavis or um, or the Islamic Republic. And that was very much, um, in many ways, because of the defeat of the left, many leftists obviously ended up going to um, Kurdistan and participating and learning from the Kurdish uh, movement um, as well. And obviously, I mean, as we all know, I mean, um, this woman life freedom uh, expression comes from obviously out of the Kurdish struggle and then has resonated very bro broadly because it does speak to kind of these deeper kind of interlocking sets of um, oppressions and forms of exploitation, which um, Iranians, you know, across the board um, um, are feeling. And I do think like actually the fact that um, Gina was, you know, Kurdish uh, was very is, is important. But I think also what's important is that for Iranians, it just didn't matter at all. I mean, mm -hmm. these kind of traditional sort of ethnic cleavages and whatever, which have always been manipulated by the central government, whether it's the Pahlavis or the Islamic Republic, that was actually um, really, you know, it didn't, it, didn't, it didn't mean it, it didn't carry any water. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was just as seen as a, you know, very much a daughter of Iran. I mean, never said Musafi, he was a former prime minister of Khomeini. Um, and who's been under house arrest for you know almost now 13 years um he um came out and issued a statement where he was saying you know daughter of kurdistan daughter of iran and i think that's been generally the broad um the broad sentiment acro across the board um so there's definitely you know the its origins in, in kurdistan are extremely important those traditions of struggle there are extremely important the way they've been taken up and adapted by iranians is is, is obviously uh, very notable um but yeah, the sort of the way that sort of struggle has been universalized and, and, and sort of had a universal resonance across the country um, and, and, and in a cross-class based way, that's extremely important. Scott, I want to ask you a question. This is um, going to get right straight to, the, to, to my position that I see that where the left is in the West on this issue. How do you address leftists who, though the Iranian Republic is a reactionary religious institution, see it as a counter-hegemonic force to the American West, the constellation of forces surrounding the West, and as a result, give it rhetor at least rhetorical support and will go as far as claim that something like these manifestations are a color revolution. Yeah, I mean, uh, do you have a tinfoil hat on you? I mean, it's, um, I just, uh, I don't really have, it. I think it's just a ridiculous, um, position, to be honest. I mean, look, I, I've been against uh, sanctions and uh, saber rattling and all of these things. And I think that that has to be almost like an a priori position for the left. Uh, if you're based in, you know, uh, the West, I mean, we need to, I mean, 
um, sanctions, you know, have a have had you know, this forms of collective punishment, economic warfare, which was launched against the Iranian population, has had a massive devastating effect on women. You've got, I don't think you can be a be a um, a kind of a uh, a feminist or say you're, you're you're for women and then be for sanctions. I think that's obviously um, ridiculous. So I think that is like a clear line that one needs to uh, hold um, very clearly. I mean, any delusions that you know Western powers could care less about um, Iranians or Iranian women has just been proven uh, flatly wrong time and time again. I mean, this is just very um, for me straightforward. So I mean, that's just to put that to bed. So there's just a, there's, there's clarity there. But I mean, this idea that the regime, which um, basically brutalizes half the population. Um, and forces them to wear um, a you know, sort of a state-enforced dress code, and can potentially kill them if they don't um, wear that. Um, and not just that; I mean, has a history of you know purging and mass executing leftists. Um, has rolled back any kind of um, semblance of a kind of the so certain sort of social provisions, which you know you could make the case in the 80s that there was this kind of war Keynesian state in Iran and. Therefore, there were certain social provisions which were made, and there was a degree of social mobility, and there was some degree of healthcare which reached um, rural sectors which didn't previously. I mean, that's to some extent true, but that, a lot of that has been rolled back. And ultimately, it's a theocratic state. I mean, the main, the, the claim, uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei's claim to um, legitimacy is the fact that he's representing, you know, um, the hidden Imam um, in absentia uh, and basically God, and is sort of is the holder of uh, divine. Um, sovereignty um, um, until the return of the hidden imam, um, and um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's not it's, it's, it's not damn it's an autocratic state. There's no basically they have neutered. I mean, there, it never was really a democratic state, but there was a degree of like factional competition which did have meaningful repercussions for Iranians. So if you voted for a kind of a really right wing a figure or a reform, more reform-minded figure, yeah, of course, there were like deep structural problems still with the state. Um, one shouldn't have any illusions about that. And I wrote a whole book like critiquing reformism and the limitations of reformism. But it did also have material uh, impact and effects for people's lives. But the idea that this is sort of an ally of um, an anti-imperialist kind of um, movement. I mean, look, on the one hand, you could say, yeah, the Islamic Republic is giving meaningful support to Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad and Hamas and these sorts of things. But I mean, these movements themselves have their limitations and they themselves are, I mean, are they kind of the kind of movements we want to embody or that we want to see um, kind of realized in the world? I mean, also, I mean, a, a Palestinian activist made this really uh, important argument. It's sort of how can Palest Palestinians surely have no expectations from, an Isla from the Islamic Republic of Liberation, a, a state which basically murders and represses its own citizens on a, reg on a regular basis? I mean, um, and it's a, it's a capitalist, oligarchic. I mean, if we're leftists, if we're on the left, I mean, I just, it just seems to me just absurd to say so we could actually support a capitalist, theocratic, oligarchic, um, a very reactionary state, which. Um, well, was a state that was more effective at liquidating the left than the Shah's regime had been. You know, like they were more, you know, they ended up being able to destroy an entire generation of uh, of leftists where the left in Iran, although it had been suppressed under the Shah, had been able to struggle on. So in certain ways, I guess they're like were more effective uh, uh, carriers of bourgeois interests. And correct me if I'm wrong, Iskander, but, you know, in terms of the economic direction of the Islamic Republic, 
as you noted, you have the war Keynesianism of the 1980s, which is obviously in part a response to the war and in, and a, in part an attempt of the Islamic regime to uh, win, peel away support from the left. But from the 1990s onwards, we've seen neoliberalism uh, being implemented in, in the country, even under hardline regimes, reformist regimes, the shift has been towards uh, a, a more quote-unquote free market capitalist system. I think Rouhani has even a book where he makes the case for some kind of economic liberalization in Iranian, Iranian, uh, uh, Iranian economic system. So, you know, you can kind of understand the people who might defend Vietnam or China, which are formerly socialist. But this is like an openly right-wing capitalist state. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, look, I, I think we shouldn't shy away from calling the Islam, you know, naming the Islamic Republic and uh, and calling it, you know, calling a spade a spade. But um, I mean, there's no reason why we can't, you know, be very, um, I mean, lucid and uh, I mean, just frank about what the, the kind of system that the Islamic Republic is and oppose um, mm. sanctions and uh, and the kind of a war being launched yeah. against it. And we, and we can easily point to the fact that um, the Revolutionary Guard in Iran and the uh, the likes of John Bolton feed off one another, as do the Likud and the Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guards. I mean, the kind of military-industrial complex within Iran, which obviously, admittedly, is very small compared to you know this what is going on with the United States or even you know the Israelis. Uh, uh, and so we don't have to have it, but you know we can have those those positions, mm -hmm. and I think we should because I also do think there is a strain of leftism which, fortunately, unfortunately, kind of completely then. Um, just focus on the evils of the Islamic Republic, and it just becomes this incoherent, like you know, um, a moral the evil sort of regime, and it's sort of like, and then then what's the next step? It's like we have to get rid of it at any cost, and then obviously, yeah, if we have foreign leverage, if we use foreign leverage, then so be it. I mean, I'm never, I've never been on board with that, and I never will be on board with that. So. I think that's a really important point that you make that I think we need to emphasize here. It's like when we look at these uh, politics of escalation it reinforces each other. I think like, as you said, you know, these reactionary elements in the Islamic Republic require a hardline American uh, an enemy. regime, an enemy. And not only that, but there are material consequences. Placing Iran under sanctions and siege, yeah. uh, it enhances the power of those who have access to the resources of the state. This is what we saw in Iraq, in Iraq, yeah. Uh, the sanctions on one hand limited Iraq's ability to strike abroad, but internally it strengthened the regime because the declining economic conditions meant that the only source of income and patronage was coming for the regime. So I think we, you know, the the, well, the Islamic the, Republic is the same. I mean, they yeah. they control the ports, they control smuggling networks, they have a huge kind of uh, degree of control over the gas and oil uh, installations. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not going to hurt, um, and they're not actually. And many of them actually want. And many of them actually are behind sanctions exactly because, and they don't want. I mean, if you look at it, they don't actually want even foreign capital as a potential competitor and rival. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, this is the thing they want a simply domestic sort of form of capital accumulation, um, which is tightly controlled, corporatist, and kind of, you know, deeply, deeply um, authoritarian, but it's nevertheless, yeah, a capitalist corporatist uh, state, for sure, in form of, and sort of regime of capital accumulation in Iran. Are you saying that um, in recent years, Iran has become less democratic? 
I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say be less democratic. I would say that it's never been democratic, but um, really from let's say 1997 um, till about 20, 2005 that period, um, and maybe even a bit later, we could say there was like larger swath of the political class um, that could compete for power of you know the, in the majlis in the parliament and the presidency because those are you know there are like elections um so to speak um i wouldn't call them democratic elections i would call them kind of maybe forms of electoral authoritarianism but they're kind of all like a deeply kind of managed form of authoritarianism but with has some degree of inter-elite competition um, that definitely um, existed in Iran, and it did matter. It did. It did actually matter, um, and it was notable. Um, some would say it merely perpetuated the system, and I mean that's arguable. You could claim it was a form of kind of passive revolution, where it was in essence co-opting more radical demands, and it allowed the system to channel those um, um, and sort of manage them and manage expectations, which I think is a fair critique. I've kind of made it uh, myself often. Um, but I think, nevertheless, it's still even when a kind of a um, you could say like a Bonapartist or, or an autocratic regime uh, does take does sort of incorporate concessions that can potentially lead to more demands. It can have a spiraling effect, and um, I think that to some extent has been the case. We saw that in 2009. So, given the the very fact that people expected at least kind of a fair procedure, like uh, sort of procedural fairness in 2009, did result in one of the biggest protest movements ever against the Islamic Republic uh, in the form of the Green Movement, um, which, yeah, you could say was limited, had a limited demands. It was sort of very much within the framework of the system. Where's my vote? It was one of the main kind of um, slogans, which I don't necessarily think is all that fair. I think initially that definitely was the case, but I actually think towards the end they actually really did transcend that. Um, even though, yeah, it was it was actually very much um, kind of shut down. What we've seen, like in this last election, though, I mean, so for instance, we just compare like Rouhani's election. He was getting like seventy, it was like seventy-one, seventy-three percent turnout, if I'm not if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. And now it was like forty-eight or something. It's and it's because largely. Um, People basically saw that it was a foregone conclusion. I mean, because the structure of the candidacy is that they're kind of pre-selected by some kind of religious authority, right? To be clear for people. Yeah, yeah, they have to go. I mean, this also was something which goes back to the kind of the early 90s with the fourth majlis. So the Guardian Council, this count, this council of like six of whom are clerics and six are. Um, uh, um, sort of legal experts, judges, legal experts that are chosen by the parliament, they have to basically, in, in the early 90s, they arrogated this right called approbatory supervision, uh, which means, in short, they get to see where they get to, they have to um, examine candidates for elections um, um, and uh, basically evaluate whether they are uh, Islam, whether they accept the system, whether they're Islamically appropriate and so on. So it basically, what they did in essence, just to simplify, they just, they arrogated the right just to uh, veto candidates um, and they did en masse. Um, and they even basically in 2000, in the 2000s, they basically banned like hundred, like tens, if not hundreds of sitting MPs. I mean, who, because the sixth match list oh, was wow. actually a quite radical reform, like in terms of reformists, sort of, I'm talking discourse at the time, of, at that period, was a quite radical um Majlis Parliament, and it was actually calling for the supreme. There were, there, were, there were parliamentarians calling for the supreme leader's authority to be limited, to be constitutional, things like this. And it was actually 
uh, an important time, um, uh, again, within the context of, we say, like reformism. And we have to remember the reformists came from the from the from the left wing of the Khomeini is of, of of sort of um, of those Islamists who supported Khomeini, and many of them were involved in the hostage taking. Many of them were kind of super super radical, like for exporting the revolution abroad. I mean, you know, so and then, and then subsequently throughout the 90s, as a result of being marginalised from power and obviously having maybe a, a rethink of maybe some of their basic uh, their basic philosophy. Um, yeah, they they sort of rebrand themselves, um, and some of it might have been cynical, but some of it I do think was also um, genuine. But yeah, with Raisi, it's like very much, you know, and this is why um, sort of waiting for these sort of great fishes to emerge within the Islamic Republic political class who actually hold the reins now is, I think, is misguided because the purges have happened already. I mean, the the mass, the, the, the intense marginalizations of, of um, those elements in the political class that could have, you know, split and sort of opened up some deep kind of fault lines within the political elite that's that they've already been taken care of they're under house arrest they're in exile they're uh, been you know they're picked up and arrested or they just made they've been basically neutralized that's already been done um that happened in like in the 2000s and the early 2000s and then it happened again in 2009 and it's been kind of ongoing to the point where you know mahmoud ahmadinejad who was like a a principalist uh, right-wing candidate you know in 2005 even he's now basically more or less calling <laughs> the system needs to be completely um, overhauled. He's taking pot shots at Khamenei. And I mean, this is also just our finish here, but this is like the pattern with the Islamic Republic. Anytime the president s slightly feels kind of uh, they have a degree of autonomy and are emboldened, they're very quickly then brought that down crashing to earth. And then there's always like a tension. I mean, if you notice, you have barely seen Rouhani has not made a peep. Um, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but in any way, it's um, and now with Raisi, I mean, all, the right has all of the main organs of the state. I mean, really, you know, and all the blame now can be put at their doorstep. And as with Khamenei, who clearly engineered this, you know, it's very not very charismatic, inept. Um, in, and also, I should say, Raisi is like responsible for the mass murder of leftists. I mean, um, this should not be forgotten. Like he literally was involved in the 1988 prison massacres. Where they pursued you know, Inquisition style, they went and asked leftists, "Do you renounce your views or not?" If they didn't, they killed them. I mean, and they hung them like literally very shortly thereafter across the country. So you know, we're literally dealing with a with a with a yeah, a, a mass murdering criminal, um, uh, but who's also very inept and not charismatic. And, uh, and obviously, they have the judiciary, they have the intelligence ministry, they have the Revolutionary Guard, they have. You know, obviously, then there's the leader's office. There's all of these um, religious endowments, which are basically these big, big conglomerates, um, which wield a massive economic power. I mean, that's the kind of the, the nature of the system. It's kind of uh, you bring forth some very, very powerful, powerful points. But what is concerning to me is that we have such an incompetent left in the Western world in terms of their ability to deal with the nuances, particularly of the Muslim world that I have found in my travels and particularly in, this, in my occupation of being in those various countries at various times. Can you explain, and I know you did this earlier, how it's important to make a distinction between supporting Western regime change in Iran or Western sanctions that will pulverize the Iranian people or other attempts to destabilize the country and simply saying this is not a state that is in the interest of the left to say is a project we need to hail as the ideal of liberation. 
Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And I think, the, I don't know, at least my view is that I think the key to it is that we just need to say very clearly, the left should just not be uh, particularly invested in aligning with states. I mean, especially as like individual uh, intellectuals on the left. I mean, it just seems to me absolutely like ridiculous. All you're doing is basically providing ideological rationalizations and justifications for what well, any kind of state violence. I mean, so I think the key is, you know, we should, the left shouldn't really be uh, preoccupied with defending this or that um, state. I mean, I guess you can make a case for Cuba, but definitely not a reactionary, um, a reactionary violent capitalist, which is like openly now just shooting on 16 year olds and 17 year old kind of kids. I mean, um, and we can, and, and, and that sort of not aligned with states obviously holds for not having any delusions about kind of liberal humanitarianism or liberal intervention or military humanism or whatever you want to call it. Um, because yeah, Western powers, Western imperialist powers um, have zero interest in doing really anything um, to meaningful, uh, meaningfully kind of alleviate, uh, you know, uh, the condition of, of, of the Iranian people. So I think, you know, we just have to say if we, if the left is going to be organized and is going to do things, then it has to be at the level of grassroots solidarity. I mean, there are literally people in Iran now calling for a general strike. I mean, and there are students not going to their university classes. There are university lecturers not teaching. There are you know, people live in the bazaar who are, not, who are not opening up. There's lots of things like this actually going on. Not just that, actually. If we go further back, I mean, for the last several years, there's been absolutely like a groundswell, a ferment of retirees going on, uh, going on to, into protest, of workers, of, you know, the auto bus drivers in Iran Union have been extremely, extremely vibrant, extremely, extremely active. Um, the um, Sugarcane refinery uh, um, sort of complex in um, Haftape in the south of Iran. Um, one of their spokesmen is Ismaila Bakhshi. I mean, honestly, one of the most eloquent, brilliant people that uh, coming out of Iran that I've heard in a long, long time, um, talking about self-organization of workers, about controlling the means of production, about workers' rights, about you know, literally talking about socialized forms of production which are for the good of the many and you know, for the common good. I mean. These are the people that the left should be looking to and um, ally to. And look, I do see sometimes that some people are like, you know, they're very quick to slam and denounce, you know, the Western left in very broad terms. I don't actually think that's particularly fair because the reality of it is, is that, you know, people, other people just aren't in the loop. They don't know. And not just that, they're wary of expressing opinions, I mean, um, about things which they haven't fully got a grasp of. And, you know, if, the, if, it, if it's not out there, if the resources aren't out there, if the kind of the committed, engaged form of political education by people who do know isn't kind of happening, then I can't really blame somebody for not really making sense of it and being very skeptical about what they're reading in the New York Times and maybe thinking that, you know, maybe uh, that this regime isn't as bad as perhaps many think. So it is also the onus is also on people who do know and who are on the left to actually give informed kind of you know analysis, and you know and actually educate. I mean about what we know. I mean I do think that is a responsibility to say no. There are these really kind of vibrant um, sort of movements um, like engaged intellectuals who are who are on the left who who do want sort of solidarity, but they want real solidarity. They want solidarity from unions. They want solidarity from fellow leftists. They want or any kind of kind of grassroots act sort of activism, which which one acknowledges their plight and their struggles, but you know also maybe they can learn from we can learn from one another. I mean, Iranian leftists I'm sure can learn a lot from elsewhere, and I've always actually to be fair, I mean, the left is the historically at least should have been and has been one of the most internationalist force. I mean, it is an internationalist force by definition. I mean. 
And when I look to the left in the Iranian left that I know a lot about in the 70s, I mean, and the 60s and the 70s, it was absolutely uh, working hand in glove with the movement in Ethiopia, with Nicaragua, uh, Cuba. I mean, you know, it was, and it was very, very well appraised of, you know, the struggles against apartheid in South Africa, all these sorts of things. And there was a real, actually, organizational set of ties, logistical ties. And obviously the Palestinian movement, I forgot, yeah, of course, like very, very importantly. I mean, Iranian leftists were constantly going to Jordan and Lebanon to learn basically, um, you know, how to engage in armed resistance. I mean, the, and these were real networks. I mean, Iranians went to fight in the in the Dafar revolution in Oman in the 70s against the, the British-backed and installed Sultan. So, I mean, Sultan Qaboos. So, I mean, you know, these were real connections. They were completely flew in the face of, you know, um, what their states approved or liked and you know and they were profoundly persecuted but they pursued those connections and ties and forms of actually um, both um, sort of uh, how can I put it like verbal and kind of um, sort of express real expressions of solidarity but also like uh, um, spreading the word of other people's struggles I mean even if we go to look for someone like Ali Shayati who's not particularly you know that uh, uh, fashionable now uh, today uh, amongst Iranians, but you know, he was looking to Nyerere in uh, Tanzania. He was looking to Nkrumah. He was looking to all of these kind of um, struggles, actually, um, across the the global south, um, and you know, and, and learning from them, and actually trying to introduce them to Iranian audiences. So I mean, yeah, on the Western left, likewise. I mean, they should be trying to look. I mean, I'm not. I've got lots of problems with Shijek actually quite often, but I think you know, yeah, we should be humble, and I think many leftists are actually are willing to listen and look and try and study what's going on in Iran. And many, obviously, uh, people in the left in Iran are deeply or have always followed what's going on elsewhere, like whether it's on the left, whether it's what's going on uh, most recently in Argentina over the referendum of the constitution. Uh, so Chile, my bad, Chile over the constitution, or um, or the Nicaraguan revolution in the late 70s. Um, um, or translating, I mean, everything from Marx to Silvia Federici. I mean, you know, there is a lot of actually a real global awareness in Iran. And I think, you know, the the Western left sometimes, at least some elements of it, do suffer from this kind of, um, yeah, a kind of narcissism and sort of there's a sort of a, a sense that, you know, only what's going, well, our preoccupations are the only ones that really matter. Yeah. But, you know, there used to be a humility uh, also. So I think humility and a kind of a radical, a radical kind of pedagogy and like those who are informed should actually be telling people what's, you know, going on and sort of giving them the lay of the land. And I think it's important to note, you know, uh, there's some very positive developments, at least maybe they won't bear fruit now, but for the future, the regime's attempts to polarize this issue along ethnic lines doesn't seem to be working as it might have worked in the past there seems to be i mean uh, and we've discussed this off askander you know one of the few places where there's still an organized left is in in, in parts of kurdistan and there's there is like an interaction between iranian leftists Sometimes I think we've discussed that it gets to a little bit of silly proportions, these interactions between Iranian and Kurdish left. But I think in general, that kind of interaction is really important. I think, you know, a kind of like rejection of the old nationalist paradigms uh, are important. And a look to a kind of a real internationalism is, is the way forward. But, you know, as a kind of final question, and it's kind of a, I guess it's kind of a big question. So please feel free to take your time. Uh, and explain explaining it when you view and i know it's difficult to you know ascertain exactly what's going on on the ground 
what are the social forces, you know, what, what, what social classes and forces are really at the head of this group? How far is this like a middle class movement? What is the role of, of the working class, you know, the oil proletariat, the, the I mean, because there have been waves of strikes in the past. What is the, in short, what is the class makeup of the coalition that is developing against uh, the Islamic Republic? Who remains on the side of the Islamic Republic? And to what extent uh, is there any organizational base to this? A lot of people have been talking about this as a leaderless movement, but is there a prospect of a more organized movement coming out of this since there's no reformist movement anymore, you know, that it's being crushed? Will the exile, I mean, because one of the things that terrifies me is that, you know, the reformist movement uh, in a kind of revolutionary situation might have given Iran a kind of soft landing, but because of sanctions, because of the polarization, you know, I'm terrified that this, this will end in a kind of Syria 2.0 in the worst case scenario. And what role are these exile groups playing? You have the Shahs, they have a lot of money. You have Mujahideen, I don't know where they get their money from or how they organize, but they're everywhere. You, so you have all these different forces together. Like, what's going on uh, as far as you can see? And like, how far is this going to really be a revolution? Is this going to be the first step to something that might take a lot longer? Uh, or do you think this is actually in the short term going to bring at least some kind of liberal democracy to Iran? And I know that's a big question, but tackle it how you feel. Okay, uh, how there's you a feel lot there. Way. I mean, um, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, as we said, like, <coughs> Obviously, the Kurdish kind of liberation was a, was initially a key part of it, um, and that obviously speaks to just you know decades and decades of um, systemic sort of marginalisation or oppression, and, um, and yeah, sort of lack of development, and just like systemic forms of kind of discrimination against um, Kurdistan. I mean, um, and obviously there's a class component there, of course, as well, um, without any doubt. And I mean. The kind of humble status of um, you know Masal, you know, Hamidi's family is again it's an example. It wasn't sort of like I mean, some people have contrasted with Neda Abbas Sultan. It was a sort of a more middle class kind of university kind of student. It was seen as sort of the emblematic kind of martyr quite of the of the Green Movement. Um, I think what was interesting, at least in the first weeks, I, I, we still have to see, I guess, how is it going to develop and such. But there was protest. I mean, obviously. With then what of 80 odd uh, cities and towns and it was across the country so that was, was in itself very notable also in certain places like Mashhad and others which are seen as generally quite religious cities so even in these places quite like serious protests um, I think obviously middle class was there working class people in places such as Nazi Abad, which is in sort of downtown Tehran you would see protests um, obviously yeah in terms of numbers I think we don't have um, we don't have precise uh, uh, I do think like the last several years, because of the degree of economic pressure, both sanctions, but also, I mean, just this long, long sort of standing kind of, you could say, the uh, neoliberal organization of the Iranian economy, which has exacerbated the kind of the wealth gap um, and inequality. Um, you do see, you have seen a coalescence, I say like a cross-class sort of coalescence of just general discontent um, um, and a downwardly mobile middle class as well. So, I mean, the, because of sanctions, because of kind of the depreciation of the real and the currency, because of things like that, people are just a lot, lot poorer. And I see this in, like very much in my family. I mean, like people who could go on holiday uh, now literally can't, and people that could 
eat meat like twice a week now, once a month. I mean, things like this. I mean, there is a real kind of um, deterioration in people's um, living standards. I mean, that's for sure. And then there are people who sort of take exception, take exception to the fact that we say, oh, no, economic is part of it. I mean, I don't know if you're, if you're sort of speaking from a kind of Marxian perspective, it seems to be self-evident what we have to speak about because political and economic kind of power are two sides of the same coin, uh, in essence, and reinforce one another. But, so I think there is that element, um, which is important. Um, the other part is the, is the age, I would say, um, sort of the age of the protesters. So the average age from what, I'm, what I've read is like in the early 20s, I mean, or even like 20s. So it's a generation which um, never obviously saw the revolution. I mean, this kind of language of, you know, we're fighting global arrogance for the nature of the revolution and the martyrs who sacrificed in the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, all of this stuff has no, like, you know, it's very little purchase for them. I mean, I think that's very real. It's just very little purchase. They don't even remember the reformist movement. So it's not even like they've seen, yes, through electoral means, some things are possible. What they've seen, I think, would be the Rouhani administration and the massive kind of um, increase in expectations with the signing of the nuclear accord then those basically come in crashing down and then basically like a uh, then we had obviously you know a massive protest in 2019 which was in relation to the removal of fuel subsidies which you know the islamic republic is said to have killed i mean the initial sort of initially it was said it was 1500 people they killed but i think it's probably close to you know in the, in the hundreds uh, which obviously is horrific i mean and but we don't have a precise number. But anyway, it was really a horrific um, sort of um, period of repression. But it was all basically working class or informal sort of working people, working poor people, just like shooting directly into. I don't know if you remember that, Jim, but it was absolutely horrific. It's uh, um, in November 2019. Yeah, I remember. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, was, yeah, uh, so we've seen. Was... Um, so working class people were uh, were there. I mean. Um, but yeah, I think like, so it is hard to, I think, I don't think it's any particular class. It's not like in 2009, like I said, people could say, oh, this is more of a working class uh, movement. I mean, sorry, a middle class movement, uh, where you could say this is more of a middle class movement. Now I think it really cuts across, um, actually. And I just think, I think it's, it is about the job. It is about women's bodily autonomy. It is about these sorts of, it is about all these issues and they are very at the heart of it and women are leaving it. But it is also just about the just general pervasive sense of uh, just uh, People just being sick of a deeply, deeply oppressive uh, system that has shown and no willingness or ability to ch to change um, in any meaningful way. So, I think it kind of really does on that level speak. But and you know, um, and now university students are very much at the helm. So, again, many could say that is again a middle class or intellectuals, um, which is some truth to that, of course. But we should also remember that many people who are in, for instance, the state system in Iran aren't necessarily from middle class families. I mean, some are, but many actually come from more humble backgrounds and they're just very smart, talented kids who have managed to kind of get into the state system, which is extremely competitive. So, you know, just because it's university students at the moment who are taking now taking a lead um, doesn't mean we can just immediately just dismiss this or designate it as, you know, middle class. But I think, you know, I think this is going to carry on simply because, um, in different ways and there'll be kind of it'll flare up and go back and forth but i think there's going to be a sort of a long-standing kind of uh ongoing war of attrition actually um which the regime would obviously try to contain and they might do a kind of tactical withdrawal about uh, hijab enforcement and things like this but i think you know people will continue to very much um 
push the boundaries on this, but simply because, you know, women just walk in the very fact. I mean, I did sort of make this kind of kind of critical mark about this genre of scholarship was kind of looking at sort of uh, sort of, um, you know, hedonistic sort of behavior and all these sorts mm -hmm. of things and women pushing the hijab back as a form of protest. And I think when it was done in a very liberal, um, let's say neoliberal individualistic kind of fashion, it was actually quite like vacuous. But now, literally, yeah, a woman just walking down the street is a kind of a massive kind of uh, a middle finger to the whole system. I mean, it kind of just shows that just the whole system in a sense, symbolically, is the symbolic authority of the system just crumbles. I mean, this is why when some of the pictures went viral, they immediately went and arrested the women just for literally going to a coffee shop you know, and having mm. tea without the hijab, because I think, anyway, and basically every single woman now can take up that sort of position, and it is profoundly kind of subversive, and then it gives kind of, you know, it spurns on others to do the same, and I don't think they're going to be able to contain it in this way, but the, of course, you know, does that mean that the regime is going to crumble? Of course not, because, you know, as you've been saying, there's a deep kind of rooted, entrenched military industrial complex uh, with, with, a, with, you know, very kind of, um, uh, powerful economic interests at stake, and they're not going to um, give that up. I mean, no. I mean, what will happen, we have to see. But I think, like, for the moment, they're united. If Khamenei dies, then, yeah, there's very likely that they could turn on one another, um, and you could have groups then trying to capitalize and appeal to the protesters and things like this, or to or appeal to that part of Iranian society which is really fed up with the um, Islamic Republic. But again, this is all kind of, you know, uh, being trying to play clairvoyant, and we really kind of um, we don't know. Um, yeah, the opposition, uh, people like you know Masih Nijad and Reza Pahlavi and the Mujahideen Ahad. To be honest, um, they tried to appropriate the movement, but I just think it's actually it's so much more progressive than all of their reactionary claptrap that they just haven't been able to actually. I mean, as you know, like Masih Nijad came and had this uh, terrible piece in the New Yorker where she kind of claimed leadership. And the thing that was always just reassuring, was immediately reassuring for me is just to see like so many people just denouncing that actually and saying, no, you have no leadership. It's down to the people in Iran. So, you know, and it is really led by the people within the country. I mean, uh, and this is why actually that interview with the New Yorker with Nassianu was so damaging because it kind of, it took away from the fact that this is a movement which is, you know, a struggle, a huge struggle, a massive struggle, I would say historic struggle uh, coming from within inside. Um, and it's pushed by women inside, you know, and obviously on the backs of, you know, decades and decades of struggle against this sort of patriarchal capitalist theocratic state. Um, so, yeah, they've tried to approach it, but I just think, you know, they, they can't. And I also saw another video, which is actually just interesting, where the wife of Reza Pahlavi, uh, yeah, the, um, the son of the, of the, of the last Shah, um, she was in a rally and basically someone put this said this chant which has been a quite regular chant actually throughout the protest it says you know um death to the oppressor and um, whether it be a shah or whether it be like a king or it be a leader like obviously referring to the supreme leader so someone chanted that and then basically the kind of the the the, the lout who was next to her or maybe her bodyguard or whatever i don't he all of a sudden just started saying death to stalin death to lenin and wow. and then basically <laughs> Uh, I think that is Russell like at least say somebody who's still alive, they're dead, kind of thing, you know. Um, so I mean, it was really interesting, even in that context. And this was obviously in the diaspora, but people were saying that. So it's and and but in the in in Iran itself, that's been a very common chant. Actually, you haven't and, seen pro-monarchist chants. Um, and the 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 chant, you know, the woman life freedom, which you know comes from Ojalan, 
you yeah. know they they're trying to appropriate it like i my mind exploded when i saw shabano tweeting you know woman life free i was like this is like you, you, this is like but you know a lot of uh, kurdish people have been complaining it's like oh they're appropriating a slogan it's like it's a good slogan people should appropriate it that's the point of a slogan is exactly. to be is to be appropriated and then like uh, and then they complain that it can be appropriated by liberals which it can be because woman life freedom could be read in a liberal way but i don't think that's how people are appropriating that slogan i think they're getting that slogan and at least in some respect maintaining that radical message of uh you know female emancipation in a kind of more anti-capitalist mode not just like liberal feminism you know yeah. the kind the kind of genre of scholarship this is a joke i always make with sarah i said sarah if you just wrote a fictional book about like a story of your sexual awakening in mashhad in the 19 like early 2000s you would like be a billionaire by now you just write the story about like about like the adventures you had and the exotic world of iran but this uh, woman life freedom is not is is, is like i think has a deeper resonance in iranian society than just well, so, like yeah i think like i mean i think like you i think i remember you tweeting this that it, that it can be appropriated by liberals and i think it is in a sense in the in like the united states and people like bill maher and like uh, these kind yeah. of other gross figures um obviously will but in the context of iran it kind of um when it does have a more radical content and provenance right but it's also within the context of iran it does blow up basically the the, the sort of the, the fulcrum of uh, clerical uh, power and control of you know the social control of um women and women's bodies and the social regulation of women's comportment and behaviors and conduct in public space so i mean I mean and it has been used as a form of actually policing and um quelling um political dissent more broadly. I mean it's just, it's a great pretext, you know, on the basis of someone's uh, inappropriate um conduct or, or or dress. I mean, you know, if it's someone who you don't particularly like and has offensive uh, political views, of course, you know, policing them on those grounds is a, is 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 a great kind of pretext. So it has been very much also just a way of driving women from public space. I mean, you know, so women can't like mobilize and be active and these sorts of things because you can constantly just you know shut them down for um not being you know appropriately dressed and not wearing the the right attire so it's very much a club with which to kind of control and police women and and, and like i said political subversion within the context of iran so within iran i think that slogan just blows up so many of the kind of the foundations of the the symbolic foundations of it and if they can't contain it which i think they will struggle to um because like i said like every every kind of act of defiance is a is a is a potential um kind of coalescence of uh, people coming around that and then obviously mobilizing because what we see more and more now as well is like people are less willing to tolerate uh, women being dragged away into you know like even like the fact that men were present so i spoke about in 79 that men were basically largely absent when thousands of women marched against mandatory hijab yeah that's no longer the case actually and one thing that really hit at home for me was when you see like uh, lots of men saying be sharaf which basically means dishonorable um to the police so previously the state had basically set itself up as this kind of the, the patriarch the big the big father um who is there to guard mm. and protect the chastity of women and many men gave the the state the permission to do that now like lots of men and not all by, by by all means because of course you know there are still you know many religious and patriarchal currents are still very strong but like many men are saying you you're dishonorable touching women and doing this and man this is disgraceful um and it's indefensible 
And like the fact that the regime has not only killed Masa Amini, but the regime Amini, it's also killed now this Nika Shakirani, this mm-hmm. young 16-year-old girl, and multiple. It's basically become the antithesis of that for which it had, had initially set itself up to be. Initially, it says that we're going to protect women. Women have been abused and turned into sort of um, you know mini uh, mini dress or sort of um, short skirt wearing sort of consumers, objects of consumer culture, and so on, and they're being exploited by capitalism and so on and so forth. And that was very much like a part of the Islamist ideology as well. Um, now it's like they're literally shooting at 16-year-old girls, I mean, and like beating them to death. I mean, it's like, it's just like the absolute antithesis of that which they had claimed. They've already, they've always been killing young girls, I should make that clear. I mean, they would arrest them on the street for putting out like communist or, or Mujahideen literature or whatever, and they killed and tortured them and raped them and these sorts of things. That's not new to this regime. But the fact that it's like, it's uh, so public, millions of people are aware of it, um, to the point where they eat this Nika shock at me. I mean, this actually really infuriates me. It actually, it's even a struggle to talk about it, what they did to her. They basically killed her, they beat her to death. Then they uh, didn't allow her parents to bury her. They took her body and buried it in the father's village without even actually telling the family. I mean, it's just like... I mean, in like a dump of- grave too. You see the yeah, like what kind of monstrous like uh, system does that? I mean, to a 16-year-old girl, I didn't even turn 17, when they plan to bury her in their hometown of Khoramabad, like on her birthday. I mean, it's just like honestly, it just uh, it's too much sometimes. It's uh, really, really like uh, anyone who wants to defend that. I mean, good luck to you. I mean, uh, um, but it's indefensible. Uh, it's it's disgusting. Well, thank you, Eskander, for uh, spending uh, some time with us today and, and shedding some light on the situation currently in Iran and once again illuminating us with uh, a brief history. No, thank you for having me. Sorry for a bit of making Are there any, are there any uh, female scholars or uh, journalists that uh, you would recommend that we follow regarding these events? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's plenty. I mean, there's quite a few. Um, I would recommend uh, Manije Muradian, um, Gornar Nikpur, um, Arzu Osanlu, who's in Washington. Who's, she's very, very good. And she's done a lot of work uh, on the reform movement. Um, and also Mahnazir uh, Matin, who is like a who is a, a leftist scholar, um, who was a was a radical. Um, um, back in the in the 70s, and is still very much one, but has published a lot on um, the women's movement. I was a very active participant in it. Shahzad Mujab, um, who I have a lot of you know time for, obviously as a professor at Toronto, she was very much active in the Kurdish struggle as well as feminine struggles, and she's amazing. She's really an incredible, incredible person um, and scholar. So I mean, there, of course, there are many, um, but yeah, I think you know they're all great. Um, yeah, definitely you should think about getting Shahzad on at some point. Uh, yeah, definitely. That would be excellent, yeah. Well, thank you, Iskander. If you guys like what you are seeing and hearing, please don't forget to hit that like button as it gets to show up in the algorithm so more people can see it. And we are out.